Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Keith Steffen, a member of the National Association of Letter Carriers. Your support helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Rebecca Meyerow of Worker Justice Wisconsin. This week, we continue our coverage of how the recent Supreme Court decision on abortion affects working families, learn more about the potential rail strike, take a look at contract negotiations across our area and across the country, present our statistic of the week, and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Federal workplace safety authorities have launched a formal investigation into a death that took place at an Amazon fulfillment center last weekend. Labor Radio has more on the circumstances. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration has launched a formal investigation into working conditions at Amazon warehouses after one of the company's employees died on the job earlier last week. The incident took place at a New Jersey fulfillment center during one of Amazon's Prime Days, an annual event held by the company that offers sizable discounts and rushed delivery to customers with a premium membership. OSHA has said that they've opened investigations into both the death itself and the consistently high rate of workplace injuries inside of Amazon's warehouses. The agency confirmed active investigations into warehouses in Chicago, Orlando, and New York City in response to referrals they had received from the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. Workplace injuries at the logistics giant occur at a staggering rate compared to other warehouse jobs. A report by the Strategic Organizing Center shows that Amazon warehouse workers and drivers suffered workplace injuries at a rate of 18.3 workers per 100 during 2020 and 2021, which is about twice the rate at which non-Amazon warehouse workers are injured. These numbers are elevated around the company's large sales days, which have escaped the orbit of major holidays and spawned their own freestanding events. According to the company's website, Customers worldwide purchase more than 100,000 items per minute on Prime Days, all of which must be processed by workers at the company's fulfillment centers. Workers have reported to the tech outlet CNET that after workplace-related injuries, they often face difficulties in receiving just compensation from the company, often having to fight through diagnoses by company-contracted doctors and legal fees to fully access their workers' compensation. In another of those reports, Workers told CNET that as a result of the increased volume on these sales days, Amazon employees are often expected to report for work, even if they are recovering from a past workplace injury. Some information from this story was derived from journalism by CNET reporter Laura Hautala and the Strategic Organizing Center. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. Is a nationwide strike of rail workers in our immediate future? Frank Emsbach has a story. Members of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, BLET, a division of the Teamsters Union, voted overwhelmingly to authorize a strike vote. 
The BLAT's action meant that all 12 unions representing most workers at the four major freight railroads in the U.S. were acting in unity to take on the major railroads. Should the strike ultimately take place, it would be the first work stoppage since 1991. Labor Radio spoke with Ron Kamenko, a member of the BLET and also an organizer for Railroad Workers United. We asked Ron, what precipitated these actions? This time around, things have gotten so dire, the carrier's demands have become so harsh, and the conditions of employment have actually worsened, and the carriers were intransigent uh, in terms of bargaining any kind of an acceptable deal with any of the different craft unions. By mid-June, all 12 came together, called themselves the United Rail Unions, and had the same basic stance on things. Deteriorating working conditions center around scheduling. Railroad workers have completely different work schedules than do most workers. Kevin Coe explains. You had eight hours off between shifts and, well, I shouldn't say shifts because they weren't shifts. There was no such thing as a, a shift on the road. You just simply took the call at two in the morning one day, two in the afternoon, perhaps the next, six in the morning the following day. And so you were really all over the place. You never knew when you were gonna get called you never knew how long you were going to be at your away from home terminal, and you never knew exactly when you were coming home. And even when you did come home, you might only have 8, 10, 12 hours maximum to take care of all your personal business and your life before you were called to go uh, back again. And if you, there was no sick time, railroaders still do not get sick time right through the pandemic, no sick time, but yet they're happy to discipline you because you're taking too much time off. The other major barrier to an agreement is the carrier's drive to impose one-man crews on freight trains. The PEB finds that the unions and the operating crafts have to submit to single-person train crews. I would suspect that the rank-and-file will vote that idea down. What the PEB will find in terms of wage increases is anybody's guess. Rail employees are covered by the Rail Labor Act not the National Labor Relations Act. There is a multi-step process of negotiations, mediation, and then binding arbitration. The companies have refused binding arbitration, and so the parties do have the right to engage in self-help that is a strike unless the president appoints a presidential emergency board, which he did on Friday. The board can issue a decision in about 30 days, and then the parties can accept or reject it. If the union members vote it down, they have the right to strike on September 18th. The possibility of direct action on the rails is unprecedented. To the best of my knowledge, what's unprecedented is that technically all 12 existing rail unions that are party to the National Freight Agreement are in lockstep. They are in coalition and they are proclaiming unwavering unity and solidarity. And this is something that Railroad Workers United has been pushing for since our founding convention in 2008. Railroad Workers United is a cross-craft organization of working railroad workers dedicated to bringing about the unity of all rail unions and have been one influence in bringing the rail unions together. Thanks to Ron Kamenko for this interview. I am Frank Emsbach from Madison Labor Radio. Breaking rocks out here on the chain Breaking rocks and serving my time Breaking rocks out here on the chain gang Cause the done convicted me a crime 
hold it steady right there while I hit it. Well, I reckon that ought to get it been working and working, but I still got so terribly far to go. I committed crime, Lord, I need crime of being hungry and poor. Hear from Planned Parenthood Wisconsin about what the Dobbs decision to overturn Roe means in terms of reproductive services in our state. Lisa Boyce, the communication and media spokesperson for Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin, talks about the impact of the Dobbs decision overturning Roe on women in our state. Since the Dobbs decision came down, it has had a devastating impact on our patients. We had patients that we had to reschedule for care outside of the state, and we are currently referring every patient who is contacting us for abortion care out of state for those services. The ban in Wisconsin is so severe that it applies to any stage of pregnancy without any exception for rape, incest, or the health of the mother. And we are seeing a lot of confusion about the impact in that women who are coming to emergency rooms for miscarriage treatment are not being treated. We're also seeing confusion amongst physicians about what the life of the mother exception really requires. People are now having to travel across state lines. For many people who don't have transportation or child care, those barriers can be overwhelming. We are concerned that there are people who are going to be forced to carry a pregnancy to term who are not capable of sustaining that pregnancy. Our services for women's reproductive health already limited? All of Planned Parenthood's family planning health centers are open across the state. We have 22 facilities and all of the other public health Departments providing reproductive health care continue to be there for people in need. It's important that people understand what sort of reproductive health choices they have in terms of preventing pregnancy if they're not ready to have a family yet. Planned Parenthood provides access to all of the FDA-approved forms of birth control and can dispense birth control on site. Long-acting reversible contraceptive methods are also available and emergency contraception, which is also known as Plan B, is available over the counter as well as at Planned Parenthood and other doctor's offices. If people are interested in what their options are, Planned Parenthood works with all people in the state of Wisconsin. We can provide pregnancy assessment appointments for people so they can find out if they're pregnant and how far along they are. We have patient navigators that can then work with each individual patient to um, understand what their pregnancy options are, what their termination options are, and how to access care outside of the state if that's what their choice is. Some women might be afraid if they experience a miscarriage that they could be charged. It's such an important thing to bring up. Our criminal abortion ban penalizes physicians who provide abortion services on women. It does not penalize women for seeking care. So no one should hesitate trying to access care if they fear that they're having a miscarriage. If they've had a self-induced abortion, they should not fear going to either Planned Parenthood or an emergency room. What if we want to help somebody by driving them across the border? 
that's perfectly legal. Um, Planned Parenthood also provides financial assistance to people in need. Great. And how can people get involved if they want to help or take action? We must continue to keep our voices heard. We must continue this drumbeat of resistance through the November elections and just know that Planned Parenthood won't back down and we won't stop fighting until everyone is able to access the sexual and reproductive care that they need and deserve. That was Lisa Boyce reporting for Labor Radio. This is Janine Ramsey. Now we take a look at how the state of Wisconsin is handling the upcoming primary. August 9th is the primary election. Labor Radio spoke to City Clerk Mary Beth Wetzel-Bale about the recruitment of election officials. The city has increased the number of polling places to 99. Why so many? Partially because of redistricting, but we are always looking at minimizing voter lines. And part of that is trying to have it that most polling locations have only one ward voting at that location. Who is qualified to be an election official? Wetzel Bale explained. Well, you need to be eligible to vote and not have a felony on your record in order to be an election official. You can be resident of another Dane County municipality and eligible to vote there, but still work at the polls in the city of Madison. Because this election is a primary and there are multiple parties, voters may be confused about voting within one party. The offices up for election include governor, U.S. senator, attorney general, and more. There are as many as eight candidates to choose from in some statewide offices. So in Wisconsin, your voter registration is not tied to a political party. We don't know what party you prefer or which party you've voted for in the past. But for the August primary election, there are four political parties narrowing down their candidates to determine who they're going to put on the ballot in November. And as a voter, you get to vote in any one of those parties' primaries but you have to pick one party and then stick within that party for this election. So it is confusing. It only comes up once every other year, but this is the election where we have to pick a party and then stay within that party on the ballot. The city clerk's goal is to have every vote count. The election official's job is to help the voter make that happen. This election is one of the elections where it's pretty complicated to explain the ballot to voters. So it's really important that we have uh, conscientious people working at the polls this election because this is the primary where the voter has to choose a party and stay within that party in order for the votes on their ballot to count. And our goal is that each eligible voter will be able to cast a ballot and have that ballot counted. So it's very important that the people working at the polls are able to help voters minimize confusion and ensure that their ballot is going to count, hopefully on the first try. And a voter has up to three opportunities to mark the ballot correctly within one party. Tuesday, August 9th, is the primary election that selects the candidates for the November election. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel.
A major Wisconsin manufacturer and its union are opening new contract negotiations this week. Greg Jabosky reports. This week, beginning Thursday, July 28th, the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, or IAM, Local Lodge 873, representing over 760 employees at John Deere Horican Works in Horican, begin negotiations with Deere on a new contract. The current contract expires October 1st. In a prepared statement, IAM Local Lodge 873 President Daryl Shep wrote, The negotiating committee and the membership are hopeful and deserving of securing a strong agreement which will provide security for the futures of those members and their families reflecting their workmanship and dedication to their jobs. These highly skilled members fabricate, assemble, and build some of the world's best riding lawn equipment and utility vehicles. Our goal is to emerge from these talks with a contract that is both fair and equitable. That was from a statement from IAM Local 873 President Daryl Shep. Negotiations between the local and John Deere and Horican begin Thursday. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Workers in the nation's capital are seeking union representation. Labor Radio reporter Ellen LaLuzerne has the story. Aides to eight of progressive members of the House filed petitions last Monday to form unions. A resolution passed in May granted congressional staff members labor protections that took effect on Monday. The resolution provides 9,000 aides with protection for unionizing and collective bargaining. After a year of planning, the move will allow House aides to negotiate over working conditions, promotion policies, and paid time off without the threat of retaliation. This right has been in place for other federal workers for over 50 years. The aides who filed the petitions will be the first test of how Congress, which is exempt from many workplace laws, will answer key labor organizing questions such as who qualifies to be in the union. The unionization efforts highlight tough working hours and low pay of congressional staff aides. Working conditions have contributed to a lack of racial and socioeconomic diversity, as well as a revolving door of top staffers who seek higher pay and better treatment. Congress first voted to give its employees the right to unionize over 25 years ago, but it did not take additional actions to extend worker protections, so the right was essentially meaningless. Daniel Shulman, policy director for Demand Progress and a specialist on congressional unions, said that those protections could be fleeting, especially if Republicans, who typically oppose unionization efforts, take control of the House in the midterm congressional elections. I'm Ellen Lalazern for Labor Radio. AFT Wisconsin opposes guns in the workplace. On Wednesday, July 20th, the Executive Committee of the American Federation of Teachers Wisconsin voted unanimously to support a petition to restore rules which had been in effect barring visitors to state office buildings from carrying weapons. Governor Walker canceled the rule. The exceptions were police officers and game wardens. The petition urged Governor Evers to restore the policy of limiting firearms in state office buildings as a step in the effort to make the work environment of state employees safer. The Wisconsin Public Employees Council sponsored the petition to the AFT Executive Board. 
I'm Frank Hemsback from Madison Labor Radio. The Economic Policy Institute says the minimum wage's value is the lowest in years. The stagnant minimum wage also has an impact on racial wage disparities. Ellen LaLuzerne reports for Labor Radio. The value of the federal minimum wage has reached its lowest point in 66 years, according to the Economic Policy Institute's analysis of consumer price indices, or CPI, data. Accounting for price increases in June, the federal minimum wage of $7.25 per hour is now worth less at any point since February of 1956. At that time, the federal minimum wage was $7.19, represented as of June 2022 dollars. Last July marked the longest period without a minimum wage increase since Congress established the federal minimum wage in 1938. Inaction on the federal minimum wage over the past year further eroded the minimum wage's value. Someone working at the current $7.25 federal minimum wage earns about 28% less than someone working in July of 2009 when the minimum wage was last increased. Compared with February 1968, when the minimum wage was at its highest level, a worker now makes over 40% less. The minimum wage increases of the late 1960s expanded the coverage of the minimum wage to include industries like agriculture, nursing homes, restaurants, and other service industries. The earlier exemption of these industries disproportionately excluded black workers. The application of the minimum wage to these industries raised workers' incomes and directly reduced black-white earnings inequality. Congress's failure to raise the minimum wage on a regular basis in the interim, however, has eroded the value and worsens racial earnings gaps. I'm Ellen Lalazern for Labor Radio. Now we'll hear about a Chipotle location in Augusta, Maine that was permanently closed this week. Labor Radio has more on the union drive that observers say motivated the company's actions, as well as the workers' response to the closing. Workers at a Chipotle restaurant in Augusta, Maine, had taken the first steps towards winning a union, filing for an election with the National Labor Relations Board at the end of June. If the vote had come back in their favor, they would have been the first Chipotle nationwide to have gained such recognition. Now, their plans are on hold, as the company announced that they'd be permanently closing the store earlier this week. Concerns were raised by the employees in the weeks leading up to the election filing around staffing levels and food safety. According to one worker, employees of the restaurant were working up to 80-hour weeks over a period of three months without receiving compensation from the company and had to seek legal recourse to get paid. According to the worker, these long hours, mixed with a chronic staffing problem and a lack of direction on trading, led to dangerous conditions for both workers and patrons at the store. Quote, Many of us came to the store because we believed in the food quality standards and company values touted in our advertising, they wrote in a statement to the main AFL-CIO. Quote, this store is important to us, important enough that we want to stay and see real changes that allow us and our customers to be safe and happy. Workers responded to the closure announcement by holding a rally outside of the restaurant. Augusta Chipotle employee and Chipotle United member Brandy McAneese said that workers would continue to have each other's backs. Quote, since we announced our intent to unionize, they've tried to bully, harass, and intimidate our crew to prevent them from exercising their right to have a collective voice on the job. But we remain united, our solidarity is strong, and we won't bend. 
We are fighting this decision and we are building a movement to transform the fast food industry and ensure the workers who create all the wealth for those corporations are respected and no longer have to struggle and no longer have to struggle to support their families. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. And now for an announcement for our donors. Thank you to all our donors who contributed during a summer pledge drive. If you chose a thank you gift, it may be delayed. Our donor partner, Susan, reports that the -the glow-in-the-dark skull baseball-style cap offered during the summer pledge drive has been delayed due to fulfillment problems. Based on the current predictions of availability, donors who chose one or more as thank you gifts should have them by the end of July. Thank you for supporting WORT and Labor Radio. Here's Carol Weidel with a statistic of the week. The statistic of the week measures the single biggest driver of inflation. According to Robert Pollan, professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, of the 9.1% increase in consumer prices, energy is 3.8%. That is 40% of total inflation. The oil companies are making gigantic monopolistic profits that can be taxed away with a windfall profits tax. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. You can now hear our show anytime. Here's Labor Radio's Scott McCullough to talk about how to subscribe to the Labor Radio podcast. Are you a worker? Then we have news for you. Labor Radio is a news program by, for, and about working people. As we enter our third decade on the WORT airwaves, we're excited to bring you a new way to listen via a podcast. The Labor Radio podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Rate and subscribe to bring more working people's issues to the digital airwaves. That's the Labor Radio Podcast, available from your community radio station, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Rebecca Meyer-Rao. Thanks to editors Frank Emsbach and Ellen LaLuzerne, assistant Robin G, reporters Mike Bernhardt, Greg Jaboski, Sean Hagerup, Anna Ham, Scott McCullough, Janine Ramsey, Tony Reeves, Carrie Weidel, Carol Weidel, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Thank you as well to website editor J.J. Meyer. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and to all our readers and the members of IBEW Local 2304, WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Keith Steffen. We also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts and Professor Bill Clark. <laughs>